church that I got started in ministry in, and uh, it was the first time I'd preached there in 10 years. And uh, they, uh, the pastor asked, right for service start, he said, you reckon Grant still knows how to preach here? And I got up, I said, you, I'm going to give myself about 90 minutes to find out. <laughs> and uh, they're Baptists, so they got nervous. They don't do that. You got about... You got about 30 minutes, but no, they didn't, they didn't limit me. And it, it was a really good time, and praise God for that service. Um, let's just go ahead and take up our offering this morning. I don't have a uh, offering teaching this morning. I think Jeremiah got COVID just so I could have a couple of weeks with you guys, so, uh, so I can pace myself. I, I got two Sundays to pace myself, so... Uh, so um, yeah, but praise God. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to give. We bless each and every seed sown. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So this morning, guys, we're going to... Um, I, I, the reason I'm skipping an offering teaching and getting straight to the message this morning is uh, I have a lot that, that I want to look at this morning. And we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And this morning what I'm going to teach on is, I've titled this teaching, Sovereignty, Authority, and Warfare. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. This has been something that's been bubbling in my heart for a couple months now, and I was just waiting for God to release me to share it. And it, it's one of those messages that... Um, it, it, it turns some tables over. I think here we're pretty established in these truths, but um, you know it really does turn some tables over. Th- this morning I was actually recalling a prophecy that I received here at this church years ago, uh, been six or seven years ago, I guess. I hadn't been here long. And there's this lady, she came up to me and she said, you have a dirty ministry. And I thought, I don't know how to take that because I'd never met her before. She said, a lot of your ministry is going to be plucking up, you know, plucking up and planning. And uh, I have found that to be true. I don't go looking. I am not, you know, I've, I've shared with people before, I'm not someone who goes looking uh, for a quarrel. I don't go looking to, to prove that I'm right. I don't go looking to, to disagree. Um, I'm, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a person who, who looks to start something. But I'm passionate about the truth. Amen, and, and, and these are three areas this morning that we're going to discuss that uh, I, I, I just think we need this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Let, let's go ahead and get started, and we're going to take our time and build a foundation this morning. It said, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now notice here, it says, And God said, Let us. Right? Let us. So in the Hebrew, when it says, and God, when it says God, even though it's, we think of God singular, it's actually God in plural form. It's referring to God as a, as a uh, trinity. And God said, let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now notice this, and let who? What's this next word? Let them. So notice God says, let us. But then he says, let them. Who's them? Us. All right? 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Do you know that uh, takes into account germs? That takes into account viruses? That takes into account all of these things? Verse 27, So God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, so notice, God said, let us make, so God is the creator, but he said, let them have, them being man. And, and man is an a all-inclusive term that is referring to male and female. Now, go with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin with verse 6. Like I said here, we're going to read, we're going to lay this foundation. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? Now listen here, verse 12. And the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now, we tend to look at... Here is the, the ultimate... This is the beginning of... This is the seed, the, the planting of the seed of the, the harvest that we see in our culture today. The blame game. Because, you know, uh, my wife and I were having the conversation the other day. People always look to blame. It, it's just, it's nature. You know, it just, it, it's human nature. And it goes back to this, that we look for someone to blame. You know, uh, when bad news comes, we look for someone. It can't be our fault. It has to be someone else's fault. And then there are those who, who we, we do blame ourselves. But someone's always to blame. All right, that, that, but, but look here. We look at it as if Adam blamed Eve. But ultimately, he didn't blame Eve. He blamed God. He said, all right, yes, I ate, but I only ate because the woman that you gave me... So notice, he couldn't say the woman that I chose because he didn't choose her. God gave Eve to him. So he said, Lord, the woman that you gave me, this was your choice. She gave me something to eat, and I ate it. 
because I've learned I better not complain about what's put on the dinner table. All right? So, so, God, so Adam blames God who gave him the woman. Adam is the first person, hear me out, Adam is the first person who considers himself a victim of God's sovereignty. Okay? He is the first person who considers himself a victim of God's sovereignty. Now look here, verse 13. And the Lord God, it's like, it's like Adam blames God and God's like, you know what, I, I'm not even going to dignify that with a response right now. Yeah. So he looks to the woman, and the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So Adam was the first person to blame his problems on God. Eve was the first person to blame her problems on the devil. Eve was the first person to claim to be a, 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 a victim of spiritual warfare. So Adam blames God. Eve blames Satan. Ninety, Probably 95% of Christians, when, when we hit a wall, when we run into trouble, they blame one of two parties. God, God's sovereign, this is, he's bringing this into my life, or the devil, I'm under attack, the devil's hitting me, you know, this is spiritual warfare. But here's the problem. God said, let us make man, but he said, let them have dominion over the earth. He did not say, let us have dominion over the earth, as if it's him and man, or it's just him. He said, let them. And them was not including the serpent. He actually gave them authority over the serpent before he even put them in the garden. All right? So if we go by that alone, who's to blame? Adam and Eve. Eve listened. Adam ate. All right? So we can't blame God, and we really can't blame the serpent. So here's what, here's what we're going to get at today. Sovereignty, authority, and warfare are three truths that we hear a lot about in the body of Christ. But sadly, what happens is these things are usually overemphasized. And an overemphasis of any truth is always abuse. It, 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 it always, always, always leads to abuse. Okay? So, here's what... This is the crux of the message this morning. Sovereignty, authority, and warfare. The reason people get weird with those things. The reason people abuse those things. How many know that something is only... A, a house is only as good as its foundation. So what happens is a lot of people begin with a truth, but their foundation isn't correct. So anything they build on the foundation is going to fall. 
it, it, it's going to have to be condemned. It's going to have to be corrected. It's going to have to be fixed. The foundation of these three truths, sovereignty, authority, and warfare, are all three found in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. I am, all, I am amazed that every time I go back and read these tra- chapters, I find something that I never knew was there. Almost every truth in the Word of God, you can trace it all the way back to Genesis and all the way back to specifically Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Almost ever true. The Holy Spirit. We see the, the, the Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 where it talks about the Holy Spirit moved upon the face of the waters. We see that the Holy Spirit is the person of God that is constantly moving on dead things to bring life. All right, so, so we, we could get into all that. But, so we're going to really look at Genesis 1 through 3 this morning, and we're going to look at three, these three truths, and we're going to redeem them. All right, and, and we're going to look at them, and let me say this. So we'll, we'll look at them in Genesis 1 through 3, and then we'll briefly touch on uh, the progressive revelation of them throughout the New Testament. But we're going to look at them one by one, but let me say this. They kind of overlap. We're going to look at sovereignty first, and that kind of gets into authority. And then authority kind of gets into warfare. All right. And you'll notice I'm not saying spiritual warfare. Because I don't think spiritual warfare is an accurate term. All right. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, all right. You're in Genesis. Let's look again at Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to begin with verse 1. We're going to begin with sovereignty. All right, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Here is sovereignty in a nutshell. All right, this is sovereignty in a nutshell. I love how the Bible starts from a place of not explaining God. Now, if I was writing a book that's going to teach people about God and His people, I would begin by trying to teach people why there is a God. But the Bible begins assuming you know this God it's talking about. Paul would elaborate on this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, I think it is, maybe 32, I don't know how many, whatever's left in Romans 1. He, be, he, he brings out this point that there is no such thing as someone who doesn't know there's a God. And Paul's argument is, listen, they know God. Inside, they know there's a God, they're just in denial of it. All right. So there's no such thing as an atheist. There's people who have convinced themselves there's an, that they are atheists, but they're not really atheists. How do you know? Be with them on their deathbed. It's, it's it just, just, just trust me, okay? I've been there. So there, there's no such thing as, as someone who doesn't know that this God is true. Now, they may suppress that knowledge, but everyone begins with that knowledge. Now, sovereignty, the word sovereign, listen to this, the word sovereign, this is the definition of sovereign. 
Sovereign means self-governing, independent, having supreme rank or power. By this definition, God is sovereign. God is self-governing. God is independent. God has supreme rank. God has supreme power. However, the modern religious definition of sovereignty is not this. The modern religious definition of sovereignty is control. It's the idea that God is controlling all things and God's will always comes to pass. Um, it's about unlimited control. Okay? And when... and Here's the thing. This is why this is important that we talk about this. There is no way to teach that. That God is in... Like, he, he's in control of everything. And that His will always comes to pass. There's no way to teach that and not eventually blame God for the world's problems. Yeah. There's no way to teach that and not eventually say God's the one who brought COVID on this world. There's no way to teach that and say God, you know, and not get to eventually say God's the one who brought this trouble into my life. It's, it's inevitable. You have to reach that conclusion. And then, you know, people get around it. Well, he allows it. No. Who has dominion? Let who? Them. So them allows it, all right? Them allows it, okay? So, so what happens, though, is people begin, they have to, to, the idea that God's in control of all things, what happens is scriptural gymnastics, right? You, you have to start bending and, and making things fit where they don't fit, and that, that's never a good place to be. And ultimately, you can't believe God is good. It comes down to you begin rearranging or changing what good means. See, you know, that's what I used to hear. Well, yeah, God's good, but yeah, I mean, he'll kill people. You know, he, he'll, he'll, take, he'll take your child. He'll, he'll, he'll get you laid off. And, and so it's like a, listen, you know what's good, right? Like it's just in you. Something in you says this isn't good, right? When you're at a funeral, you know this isn't good. When you're visiting someone in the hospital, you know this isn't good, right? When you watch the news and see all the things going on, something in you says this isn't good. So don't tell me that God's good and in control of all these things. So, but, but here, let me, let me point this out, and I'm sorry if this bores you, but I think it's important. There are two categories of believers in, in religious sovereignty. All right, there's biblical sovereignty that we discussed. That's true. But there, this idea of ultimate control, that's religious sovereignty. There are two types of believers in that category who believe in that. One, there's the intentional believers of that doctrine. Uh, again, I hate to bore you with details, but I think this is important. This falls into a brand of Christianity known as Calvinism. Calvinism follows the teachings of John Calvin um, and some other guys, but Calvinism, John Calvin... And, and what's known as the Reformed tradition, okay? Um, a lot of things that I teach on, I teach from ha of knowing about it and realizing it's wrong, but I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with it, okay? Calvinism is something I have firsthand experience with, 
Before I came into a revelation of the new covenant, my wife will tell you I was crazy about the teachings of John Calvin. Like, I was hardcore, brand me a Calvinist. Like, I wasn't in denial. I'd wear the Calvinist shirt if I had one. All right? I was all about Calvinism. Now, looking back, here's why I wanted Calvinism to be true. This idea of, of, of sovereign, you know, religious sovereignty. Because I wanted to believe all those mistakes I'd made ultimately weren't my fault. Ultimately, it had to be God's doing. See, we've taken this beautiful truth of He works all things together for our good. To, we, we've rearranged it and said He just works all things together. No, He will work it together for your good to those who love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. It's those who are after His purpose, they give Him something to work with. Yep, right. right? But it doesn't mean he, he, he makes all things happen. So there's that. And that, like I said, that, that stuff's a little boring, but I'm just, I wanted to point that out. But then there are, and this is where I think most Christians fall into, there's the unintentional believers of religious sovereignty. What this is, is, and I, or I call it cliche Christianity. Um, I'll give you the biggest one. Well, God's in control. Something bad happens, God's in control. Now, I understand that, you know, God doesn't expect us and doesn't want us to handle all things on our own. All right? But we have to be careful with, say, with things like that because when I hear people say that, typically what they mean is, I'm just going to let whatever is going to happen, happen. Right? I'm not going to take action. I'm not going to believe God for better. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Case Sarah, Sarah. Right? Or here's one. Well, if God wants it to happen, it'll happen. See, this promotes passivity. But let them have dominion. Look that up in the Hebrew. That's not a passive act. It means to, I was looking it up this morning. It means to subjugate. It means to reign. All right? So, so it's not a thing of passivity. God put us on the earth to, to have dominion. Not to sit back and say whatever's going to happen is going to happen. All right? We are His image bearers. We were made in His image. And, and how many knows when God created this earth here in Genesis 1, He wasn't just letting things happen. And God said, and God said, and God said. The Spirit moved upon the face of the waters. God is not passive. God is not freaking out, but He is not passive. All right? So, and, and I think you really see this. I'm going to tell you an area where I really see cliche Christianity is when it comes to the idea of healing. Um, I hear it a lot. You know, when, when I talk to some sick, well, if God wants me to die, I'm going to die. If God wants me to go, I'm going to go. If He wants me to stay, I'm going to stay. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches, Old Testament, New Testament, that you can lengthen your days. 
The Bible teaches Old Testament and New Testament that you can shorten your days. All right? Paul said, he said, listen, I'm stuck between two. I don't know whether I want to go or whether I want to stay. Yet what I shall choose, I don't know. But modern Christianity doesn't have that view. Its view is, well, if he wants me, I'm, I'm stuck between wanting to go or wanting to stay. We'll see what God chooses. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, yet what I shall choose, I don't know. So, the biggest problem with this scripture, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's the biggest problem with this idea that God is in control of all things and His will always comes to pass is that the scriptures teach that God's will doesn't automatically come to pass and it, listen to me, it's going to sound blasphemous, it doesn't always come to pass. Now, 11, 12 years ago, you said that to me, I would have took this goat skin Bible that I love and slapped you in the face with. <laughs> because how dare you say that God's will cannot come to pass? See, we, we think that somehow it, 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 it hurts God, right? Like, well, and it's, 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 it's ridiculous. But look here, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, here's what. listen to the King James here. Who will... Now, the New King James says he desires, but in, in the King James it says who will have all men saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is God's will, that everyone be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's unshakable will. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says something similar. It says, listen, don't count, the, you know, don't think that, that the Lord's slacking by not coming back yet. He will have all, he, he wants all men to repent. All right? So God's will is for everyone to be saved, for everyone to enjoy eternity, never to be separated with Him. Here's the problem. The Bible teaches that that won't be the case for every single individual. Now, I am of the persuasion that there will be far more people in heaven than, than there will be on the other side of things. Right? I believe that with all my heart, and I believe Scripture teaches that. But there is absolutely, you have to do some real scriptural gymnastics that come to the conclusion that everyone will be saved. Everyone will not be saved. See, earlier, remember I talked about Calvinism and the Reformed tradition. This, this teaching of universalism, everyone will be saved, or inclusionism, everyone already is saved and they just don't know it. All these are, they're just nice versions of Calvinism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me tell you something about Calvinism. These people, not, not all of them, but like I said, I used to, I, this used to be my crew. I know... Most of them are hard people. Like their, their, their doctrine is their God a lot of times. I know. I was there. That was me. Okay? And, and so 
so what universalism and, and inclusionism is, is it's a little bit of, well, let's put a smile on it. Let's make it sound better. Let's, let's be nicer about it. But it's, this, it's ultimately the same conclusion. God's will always comes to pass. God's will is for everyone to be saved. Everyone will be saved. Now, Calvinism doesn't hold to that, to universalism, but like I said, it's just a nice version. Same, same tree, right? It's the same tree. So we, we have to be real careful with that. So what I'm saying is, is if you believe God's will always comes to pass, you have to be a universalist. Because God's will is for everyone to be saved. So your logical conclusion has to be God's will always comes to pass. Everyone will be saved. That's not biblical. That's not scriptural. We teach against that hard here, all right? Uh, look here one more. Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Now listen, when it comes to God's knowledge, when it comes to, to things like this, there are some things we just don't know, right? And, and, and one of the arguments I'll hear about people on this is, yeah, but God knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. I'm eventually going to teach a message on the foreknowledge and, of God and predestination. Foreknowledge of God is not God seeing everything that was going to happen millions of years ago and said, okay, that, that looks good, I'm cool with it. Foreknowledge, the word foreknowledge actually means to foresee. Foreknowledge, again, I'll teach on this later on, Foreknowledge is the faith of God. It's, God. it's it's God had a picture in his heart of what he wanted to see. All right, but that's coming that's that's coming another time. You ain't ready for that. All right, you, you're not ready for that. It's coming. You're, we're we're gonna lay a foundation for it today. All right. Listen to this though. The idea that, well, you know, God's seen everything billions of years ago. He, he knows what's up. Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. God's speaking about the children of Israel here. Because they have forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal. Listen here. Which I commanded not nor spake it. He's saying, listen, I'm not the one who wanted that. Listen here. But here, here, here's where we're coming to. Neither came it into my mind. So Israel got so vile that they were offering up their babies and their children to these other gods. These horrific deaths, they were putting their own children through these things. And listen what God says. He says, the idea, the thought that they would do that never even entered into my mind. In another place in Jeremiah, he says, it never came into my heart. So God is actually saying, listen, so whatever foreknowledge is, a lot of what we think foreknowledge is, this says, no, that's not it. All right? So here's what, here's what I'm getting at. Is God sovereign? Yes. He's self-governing. He's independent. Here's what that means. Sovereignty means God created this whole thing. Sovereignty means God dictated the rules of how all this is going to work. 
Sovereignty means nobody told God, hey, God, you should create us. Right? No, you didn't come up with this. God did. You didn't come up with salvation. God did. So here's the thing about sovereignty. And again, 12 years ago, I would have smacked you in the face with this goatskin Bible. God has placed limitations on his sovereignty. And limitations is a bad word. God has placed boundaries on his sovereignty. Right? Because he's unlimited. So ignore that. It, not limitations, boundaries. He's put boundaries on his sovereignty and he will not go beyond those boundaries. See, he's given man free will. And let me tell you something. Anytime people's free will is being removed, their choice, God's not in that. That's not God's plan. Someone's not aligned with God and His thoughts and His ways. Love always allows a choice. People, well, why did God put those, those, th- that tree in the garden that would curse man? Because love always has to give a choice. Always. If he hadn't gave them a choice, any love that we would have for him, it wouldn't be love. My wife right now, she has the choice. She doesn't have to be with me. She can go find somebody else. She can go... That's that's love is to give her a choice. Right? So, So love always gives a choice. So, so the boundaries of God's sovereignty is I will not invade or molest your free will, your choice, your ability to choose. See, if God's and here's a big one, if God's will always comes to pass, why did Jesus tell us, our Lord, our teacher, our Savior, why did he say, pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's telling you the one place God's will is always done, always carried out unhindered, and that's heaven. Right? You're not there. Rude awakening, this is not it. No matter what some people want to teach, this is not it. Okay? So, And let me say this. God's primary way of dealing with people is covenant. From the beginning, God has always dealt with man through the means of covenant. Psalm 89, verse 34, it says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. See, but what... What religious sovereignty teaches is, yes, God's made covenants, but occasionally He will break them in the name of sovereignty. God has given a promise in a covenant, but occasionally He alters that word because He's sovereign. God has given us covenants, and He will never break that covenant in the name of sovereignty. Right? But don't that do away with God's sovereignty, the idea that He's in charge? No, because every covenant has always been God pursuing man. Man has never came to God and said, Hey, let's do this covenant. Never. Covenant is God's pursuit of man. 
He's always pursued man through covenant. All right? So he's still sovereign because it's still his idea. It's still what he wants. All right? You know, and let me say, so when I say that, that this idea of religious sovereignty or religious control is wrong, I'm not saying that God is up in heaven worried that things aren't going to work out. It, it, it's like this. You know, when we uh, used to travel out to Colorado, out to Woodland Park, we knew what the end was going to look like, right? We had seen what Karis Bible College looked like. You know, we, we, we knew all that. We'd, watched, we'd seen enough conferences. We'd seen enough pictures. We knew what the end result looked like. But man, oh man, we did not know how bad Indiana, Illinois, and Missouri, and Kansas was going to be, and eastern Colorado. Listen, eastern Colorado, don't ever go to eastern Colorado. It's, gosh, it's awful. But... See, that's kind of the way God's plan is. Yeah. He, he sees the end from the beginning. Yeah. 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 He's in control, big picture. Yeah. He's got this. He's not worried. He's not freaking out. He's not, nothing's taking him by surprise. But yet there are some things along the way that I don't think God likes the scenery. I don't think he likes some of the choices we're making. Now, he is faithful to get us there. And he will get us there. But some of the scenery, God's not liking. All right? He's not enjoying it. So this brings us to authority. Like I said, they, they kind of they go together. They, they lap some. So back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Let's go ahead and go to Psalms 115, verse 16. But remember Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Let them have dominion. Let us, God created, but man is to carry out dominion. Man is to have dominion over the earth. Psalm 115, verse 16. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. Ladies and gentlemen, why is this world in the shape it is? Psalm 115, verse 16 has your answer. And listen, I'm thinking about it. I want to do it. We'll see if God changes my mind over the next week. But next week, I, I, I'm going to be here with you again, and I really want to teach on the return of Jesus according to Jesus. <laughs> yeah, there you, go. you will be surprised that all of these things that we say that, that religion taught us is God punishing the world is ultimately man doing some really stupid stuff. Yeah. Do you know, listen, a few years ago, I read a book by Dr. Jim Richards on the second coming, and uh, to this day, it's the only book on that subject I'll recommend, but he mentioned that a lot of these things like natural disasters and pandemics and things were going to be man-made. And I remember reading that book and thinking, there is absolutely no way. How in the world can a natural disaster be man-made? I have it saved on my phone just the other day, the headline, that China has learned how to control the weather within this certain radius. They're, they're still testing it. And they're, they're actually extending how far they're, they're putting it to a five-mile radius of how they're still going to test it out. So listen, 
God's not punishing the world. Man's messing it up. Okay? And, and a lot of the things that people call, well, that's God's wrath on people, it's the earth responding to sin. See, we don't realize how greatly sin has affected our world. Over and over in the law, see, people read the law and they say, see, it says over and over God would punish them when they did this. Go read it. You'll be surprised how many times God said, listen, now if you do this, the, the land will vomit you out. In other words, you're going to tick creation off and they're going to handle it. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to get rid of you. I'm not going to have to do it. It's going to do it. All right? So we're probably going to get into that next week. That's a little taste for you next week. So let me say this. In his sovereignty, God gave man authority. Authority doesn't negate God's sovereignty because it was his sovereign choice to give man authority. He dictated the terms of the way this thing is going to work. So God owns the earth, but he's leased it out to humanity. Now, I have to bring this out. And I've, I've, I've shared a whole message on it earlier in the year. We talk a lot about the authority of the believer, but we really don't understand the authority of man. There's actually, they, they go together, but man never lost authority in the garden. Again, I've done a whole message on that. Uh, because, you know, there's, tip, there's teaching out there that says when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, they gave their authority to the devil. What do you do with the fact that Psalm 115, 16 was written after the garden? The heaven, even the, the earth he has given to the children of men. And if, if, if Satan could take man's authority as a spirit being, then why did God have to become a man to get it back? Make sense? God had to become a man because man is the one who had authority on the earth. Okay? Again, I've taught a whole message on that. But, but the authority of the believer, that, more, that has to do more with we're taking this, this, this gospel and listen, we are attacking uh, the, the enemy. Right? We are taking back the territory that he has, he has over... He has, taken to a degree, all right, through the, the, the yielding of people. Um, so man has never lost his authority. So when you read these things all through the Old Testament, you don't read a lot about the devil. You don't read a lot about Satan. And people say, well, he was always there. You know, he was just in the background because he had authority. No, it was just man mucking things up. See, the enemy didn't, get a, didn't take dominion in the garden, but he did gain an advantage, the unregenerated spirit, a spirit that was dead to God, a spirit that, that was more prone to sin than it was prone to him. See, and in the new birth, we receive a regenerated spirit, and now we're more prone to him than we are to sin. Right? So, so the advantage has been taken back. All right? So... Here's what I want to look at, though. When you think of authority, because religion has made that so spooky and so supernatural, and we're, ah, God, devil, you make me so mad. You know, it's that kind of weird stuff. Not that there's never a place to get mad at the enemy. I'm going to cover that in a little bit. When you think of the word authority, you want me to tell you what you need to think of? Responsibility. 
So what we call the authority of the believer, I think it would be better and more um, practical if we called it the responsibility of the believer. The responsibility of man. See, man had the responsibility. God gave him dominion over everything that moved upon the face of the earth. Would that include a serpent? God had equipped them to handle that. They had a responsibility to shut him up as soon as he spoke. But they, they failed in their responsibility. They didn't have to shout at it. They didn't have to stomp it. They didn't, they didn't have to speak in tongues over it. They didn't have to hold a revival. They didn't have to get 150 people together to rebuke it. They just had to take responsibility and say no. All right? So the responsibility of man, the means of authority. Look here, Genesis chapter 1. So remember Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. I want to point something out to you. Look at Genesis 1, back in Genesis 1, and look at verse 29. So God creates man. He says, be fruitful, multiply. Notice the next thing. Notice the first thing he points out to them. I love this. He doesn't, point, he doesn't give them the gift of tongues. He doesn't give them uh, a Bible. He doesn't give them a church service. He doesn't, you know, doesn't give them power of healing. Look what he gives them. And God said, see, I want you to see something. I have given you every herb that yields seed. So the first thing, when God gives them dominion, the first thing he points out is seed. The primary thing that we are responsible for in this earth is seed. Listen to me. Everything in this creation is sustained by seed. God created trees one time. One time. Ever since then, it's just been seed. God created animals one time. Ever since then, it's just been seed. God created humans one time. Ever since then, it's just been seed. Right? Everything in creation is sustained by seed. And listen to this. Everything can be seed. Everything. Your words, seed. Your actions, seed. Your money, seed. Your time, seed. Your job, seed. Your children, seed. Everything is seed. And so much, so many of the things that we blame on God has nothing to do with God. It's the product of seed that we have sown. Listen, listen. And I bring this out every time we have an election. Do you know how you, you would change your vote if you would begin looking at that vote as seed? Because that vote will produce a harvest. Folks were seeing it. Over the last year, we have seen how powerful a, a seed is at the ballot box. Okay? Everything is a seed. Genesis 8, uh, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest. Now listen, look here. While the earth remains, 
Old covenant, new covenant, doesn't matter. Is the earth here? Then this principle remains. Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. If the earth is here, doesn't matter the covenant that we are under, there's seed, there's time, and there's going to be a harvest. Okay? So, so the responsibility of man, the, the authority of man, the authority of the believer, you need to quit looking at it as you need to shout at the heavens. You just need to reevaluate, okay, what's this harvest? Okay, I don't like that. I better plant this seed instead of that one. Look at your life, evaluate your life. Do you like it? No, change the seed. Now listen, there's grace for us. Praise God, there's grace. Everybody in here has sowed some bad seed. And your God is faithful to pluck it up. If you will just, if you will just yield to Him, okay. But here's the thing, guys. Overall, it's just like you know. Uh, I, I taught message years ago here on P the Apostle Paul and healing. And, you know, a lot of people bring out. I, I can't remember if it was Timothy, wh whoever it was, but they kept having stomach problems. And Paul says, "Quit drinking the water. Drink a little bit of wine for your infirmity's sake." And people all the time they used to use it on me. They see. Paul didn't heal him. Paul left him have his, let him have his stomach problems. Clearly, Paul couldn't heal him. No, listen, it's no different. If you, eat, if you eat McDonald's every Saturday night and you come to me every Sunday morning at church and say, well, you pray for me, my stomach's killing me, if I notice a pattern of McDonald's doing that to you, I'm going to say, listen, quit eating the Big Macs. <laughs> sow, sow some different seed, and you'll reap a different harvest. All right? And remember, I teach on it every time I teach on giving. There's grace in seed because God gives us seed. This book is a bag of seed. Every promise of God is a seed that you can sow into your life and it will produce a harvest. And you want to know what that harvest looks like? Just look at Jesus. Because that was the main message that Jesus taught while He's on this earth was how to get the Word in your heart and working. Okay? So, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 9. Let me just go ahead and read this. Galatians 6, verse 7 through 9. So, Galatians, this old covenant or new covenant? This is new covenant. Be not, see, but be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, this is not what this is saying. Don't tick God off. He's going to get you when you sow bad seed. What he means is God is not mocked is, listen, Genesis 1.29, God's giving you the seed. All right? Don't mock him by acting like you can produce whatever seeds you want to in your life and reap a different harvest. God's not mocked. He has shown you seed. He's given you seed. All right? For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So think about this. If Adam would have disregarded what God said about seed, do you know they would have starved to death? I mean, I don't know if they, I guess they couldn't have died, but you get what I'm saying. 
if he would have just ignored the principle of seed after the garden, what God taught him about seed, he would have starved to death. Probably taken him a lot longer, seems like, since they lived for 800, 900 years, but he eventually would have got there. And it, here's what I'm saying that for. It wouldn't have been God's fault because God showed him the seed. God gave him the seed, but it was Adam's responsibility to use it for his own good. All right? So how does man operate in his authority? Number one, seed. Seed, time, and harvest. Number two, look here at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. All right, now look down to verse... And then God creates man. Look down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The next way I want to point out of how you operate in your responsibility and in your authority is by fulfilling your purpose. Sometimes fulfilling your purpose looks like this, doing what needs to be done. See, the success and enjoyment of your life will be determined by whether or not you are doing what God wants you to do. Everyone, I don't know anyone who's doing what God wants them to do fulfilling their purpose in life that are miserable. When I meet a miserable person, I know that's someone who's not fulfilling God's purpose for their life. And listen, that's not always... That's not always... that For most people, has nothing to do with this. has nothing to do with church. For most people. Right? I, one of, a good friend of mine, he's a funeral home director in Hazard... Love this man so much, but I'll never forget when he had a talk with me. He said, this is my ministry. Now, how many people know he probably wasn't a little boy growing up saying, I want to be a funeral home director, fooling with dead people, right? But it's his purpose. He's seen a need. See, I've, been, I've done a lot of funerals, a lot of funerals. And I can tell you, most funeral home directors I deal with, I don't like them. Like, as far as how they do their job, I don't approve of it. I think they're a lot of times cold, shallow. They come off hard. They're after money sometimes. But this man who says this is his ministry, this is his purpose, he loves people. He cares about people. He blesses people through the hardest season of their life. All right? So what, what is that? Like I said, he probably didn't have a dream when he was three. Listen, you're going to be a funeral home director. But he's seen a need. And he fulfills it. And he's good at it. And he's happy. I talked to him just, just a week or two ago. I called him up. and he talked to him about something. And we got discussed some money. And he said, listen, I, have, I, I don't even know. I have no idea about that. I don't know whether there's money that, that is owed me. Why? Because that's not where I get my fulfillment. I just see a need. And I'm fulfilling that need. All right? So here's my point. If you, want to, if you don't know what your purpose is, what is it that always catches your eye that needs to be done? 
Now again, I said most people's purpose has nothing to do with the church, but I'm, I can only use me as an example right here. God called me into the ministry when I was a little boy. Like when I was a little boy, I knew I was called to preach the gospel. When I got, when I, you know, committed my life to Jesus at 17, again, that, that call was kind of reignited. I knew I was going to preach the gospel, but I knew not right then. God separated me under that call when I was 19, and I began preaching, and I was more a proclaimer, I was more an encourager, but I can remember I looked around and it bothered me that nobody ever taught. You know, we, we just proclaimed. We just found some verses, got fired up about it, and you know, smack the pe people in the face with some sin verses. But I, I remember noticing there was this lack of teachers, and that bothered me. And, the, 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 and when I looked at it, the ministries that I honored, the ministries that I got the most out of were teaching ministries. But it was odd because I didn't teach, and I wasn't around anybody that was teaching. See, what it was is God was trying to reveal to me my purpose by, ex by exposing to me a need in the body. And when I seen that need, I realized that's my purpose. I'm the one called to fill that void. One of the ones, right? I'm not saying me alone. But so you can find, if you don't know what your purpose is, just look around and see the need. And I bring that out because Genesis uh, 2 verse 5 says, listen, God had this beautiful garden, but there was not a man to till the ground. Somebody needed to till the ground. And so God put Adam in the garden and said, you do it. Okay? And, and so what, what is it that frustrates you? Where is it that you see a need? Likely this is the area that you are called to reconcile heaven and earth. Okay? Here's the next one. I want to point out to you the next thing. So we just read Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Look down to verse 18. This is the third way man operates in his responsibility and authority. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam, listen to this, to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called them, that was their name. The next way you operate in your responsibility and authority is through your words. Because here's the lesson that God was trying to teach Adam. Whatever you call it is what it will be. Whatever you name it, that's what it will be called. All right? Jewish scholars, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says that God created man a living soul in the King James. Jewish scholars say that should be translated a speaking spirit. He created man a speaking spirit. He created all these animals first, but they weren't speaking spirits. See, that's what makes man in the image of God, is God is a spirit. Jesus taught us that. Genesis 1 teaches us, and he's a speaking spirit. And God said and God said, and God said, and God said. All right? So, here's the question. What are you calling things in your life? Are you blessing them, or are you cursing them? If you're cursing them, you're doing exactly what Adam did in the garden when he refused his responsibility. You're not walking in your authority when you're cursing what you have. 
Jesus carried this out perfectly. Remember when, the, when, when, when it says Jesus had compassion on the people because they were hungry, and he said, what do you have? And they said, listen, we just got a few loaves, a few fish. See, they seen lack. And when that came out of their mouth, we don't have enough to feed them. They cursed what they had. And I love what Jesus did. He took it, and it says he looked up to heaven, which I've taught on in the offering. It actually means he recovered his sight. He got heaven's point of view on things. But then it says he, he blessed the bread and broke it. And as he divided it, they had plenty left over. All right? Jesus blessed what he had. He was using his authority and his responsibility by blessing what he had. Isn't it funny that he didn't say, in, in my name, I curse not enough bread. In my name, I curse not enough fish. Satan, you take your hand off my bread. You take your hand off my fish. I command them fish right now to jump up out of the ocean. He didn't do that. He didn't get weird. He just blessed what he had. He used his words to bless and not curse. That was walking in his authority. That was taking responsibility of the situation. And I love this. Have you ever wondered when Jesus would teach on faith, he used two illustrations. He talked about mountains and he talked about trees. He's pointing us back to something. Creation. When God gave man dominion and he said, you take dominion over these things. You reign over these things. So Jesus, when he used the illustration of, of speaking to mountains and speaking to trees, he was pointing them back to the garden. He was pointing them back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. He did the same thing when he spoke to storms. Right? And over and over, let me say this, I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but if you want to know more about the power of words, I highly suggest you just go to the book of Proverbs. Because the book of Proverbs over and over and over and over and over talks about the power of words. And listen why this is so important. Remember I talked about the authority of man and the authority of believer. Words, this is what I'm talking about, fulfilling your purpose, seed, words. You don't have to be a believer for these things. Now that, that, that makes some charismatic and word of faith people mad, but it's true. The book of Proverbs that talks more about the power of the tongue than any other book was written by a man that was not born again. Right? Nobody in the Old Testament. Every book in the Old Testament is written by someone not born again. It was something, and so Solomon was sharing wisdom for living life in this earth. And that's why a lot of grace people, they don't like the book of Proverbs. They're like, oh, it's all do, do, do. Well, listen, you have to do some things while you live here. I hate to break it to you. There's just some things you have to do while you live here. So Proverbs isn't talking about your salvation. It's not talking about the new covenant. It's not talking about grace and faith. It's just telling you how to live wisely in your time here on this earth. And so I highly recommend you go to the book of Proverbs. Real quick, I'm not going to read them, but here's three verses. Proverbs 6, 2 talks about you being snared with the words of your tongue. Proverbs 15, 4 talks about how a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. And Proverbs 18, 21 talks about life and death is in the power of the tongue. All right? So, all right, we're going to finish here. We're going to last. So we've talked about sovereignty. We've talked about authority. Briefly, let's talk about warfare. All right? Genesis chapter 3, begin with verse 1. Now the serpent 
was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. So listen to me. Genesis 3 verse 1. Has The serpent came to Eve and said, Has God indeed said? Ladies and gentlemen, this is warfare. At its simplest, in its most simple form, in the most simple explanation, here is warfare. Will you believe God or will you believe the enemy? Will you believe the truth or will you believe the lies? Spiritual warfare in a nutshell, whose report do you believe? I don't have to tell you about binding and loosening things over Georgetown, over Hazard. I don't have to talk to you about screaming to the devil that walks in your room in the middle of the night. I don't have to tell you about getting those demons out of people. I'm not saying there's not a place for getting demons out of people. I'm not saying angels and demons don't exist. They clearly do. But I'm telling you, every listen, you, you will, if you see into the spiritual realm, angels and demons, it will be very few times in your life even those who operate in that gift and sin to the spiritual realm. It's not like 24-7 they're walking around seeing every demon that walks down the street. But you know what they do have to deal with every minute, every second of every day? The beliefs of their heart. Proverbs 3, remember Proverbs 3 where he talks, or Proverbs 4, where he says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Notice he did not say, rebuke the demons above all else. Fight the devil above all else for he determines the course of your life. No, guard the heart. Why? Because that's the seat of your beliefs. That's the seat of your identity. That's the core of who you are. So when the serpent came to Eve in the garden, he gave her, just like God gave her a choice and God told her what the results would be, the serpent gave her a choice, but he lied about what the results would be. God had gave her his wisdom. Now here came the serpent with his wisdom. And it was up to them at that point to tell, to believe God, not the serpent. That's warfare. And in the New Testament, you see that over and over, that warfare is... Listen, I did a teaching. I don't know if you, how many of you heard it, but I did a teaching last year when we were doing teaching online, a series called A New Covenant Guide to Spiritual Warfare. I still have people send me messages that's never heard of this church. And they're like, listen, I found you on YouTube teaching on this series. Changed my life. And I bring out in that series that if you look up every instance of the word war or warfare in the New Testament, not one time does it mention demons. Not one time does it mention the devil. And not one time does it mention angels or, 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 or anything like that. It's always talking about the realm of the soul, of the beliefs, of the imaginations of your heart. And the reason I'm not saying spiritual warfare for the most part is because that's wrong. I don't think there's a battle in the spirit. But there is a battle in your soul. From, James said in chapter 4, he said, From where do fightings and raging, or where do fightings and battles come from among you? Come they not? And he says, he points to the inner man. All right? Peter, told, Peter tells us, he said, Listen, watch out for those things which war against the soul. 
John said, 3 John verse 2, Beloved, I pray above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Listen, he did not say, I, I pray that you be in health as long as you're rebuking the devil. As long as you, you, are, you are... He said, listen, he pointed to the soul. He didn't give the devil... We give the devil way too much credit. We are convinced that he has a whole lot more power than he actually does. Again, I'm not saying demons aren't a thing. They are a thing. They're in the New Testament. But primarily, we are dealing with ourselves. We are dealing with the beliefs of our heart. We are dealing with the imaginations of our heart. We are dealing with the thoughts of our heart. So remember how I said we, should call, we can call authority responsibility? Well, we can call warfare choices, decisions. That's warfare. Every day you make a choice, you make a decision. Am I going to believe God or am I going to believe the lie? Am I going to believe His report or their report? That, and, and, well, how's that warfare? Because every, a lot of times everything in you is screaming at you that what God says is not true. That who God says you are, there's no way that's who you are. The enemy points to your flesh, right? But God points out who you are in the Spirit. So, so I wrote this down. Spiritual warfare isn't yelling at the heavens or seeing demons and angels. It's making a choice. See, Eve's ultimate failure was this. What God had told them wasn't steadfast in her heart. See, she, Eve... We don't read anywhere, it may have happened, but we don't read anywhere where God told Eve what He told Adam. So Eve had, the best that we know, had second-hand knowledge about what God had said. A lot of people are defeated by the enemy and in this area of warfare because they've not got the Word in their heart. All they've got is second-hand information. They've got what Jeremiah's told them. They've got what Grant's told them. They've got what Brian's told them. But they've yet to hear the truth from God and get it in their heart. Right? If you're just going by what I say, listen, you'll be defeated. You might win a few battles, but eventually you'll be defeated. You have to get it in your heart. Because it is your heart that is determining the course of your life. It's my heart that's determining the course of my life. Alright? So, who... Do you believe? So, Eve's ultimate failure is what God had said wasn't steadfast in her heart. Paul referred to Eve as being deceived. He said Eve was deceived, not Adam. Why? Because Adam couldn't be deceived because he heard directly from God. Adam made a choice to, to, to go with his flesh and the lust of the serpent over the wisdom of God. He chose the wisdom of the serpent over the wisdom of God. All right? So here's what I'm getting at. When you hear, did God really say, you need to establish in your heart, yes, He did say that. You know, this idea that we have, listen, I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying I don't see the evidence of it in Scripture. That God puts bad thoughts into our mind. 
or not God, excuse me, the enemy, the devil puts bad thoughts in our mind. I don't know if that's true. I think it's the leaking of it's the leakage of your heart revealing a belief that you have that's false. Well, what, 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 listen. If the devil could read your mind and put thoughts in your mind, then when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Nebuchadnezzar called the sources, why couldn't why couldn't the sorcerers tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream? If the enemy had a, a access to Nebuchadnezzar, an evil man, an unregenerated man, then why didn't the devil tell the sorcerers what his dream was? Again, I'm not saying 100% that's wrong. I'm just saying it doesn't hold up as well as we think it does. And we see the same thing in the life of Pharaoh in Genesis. All right? So, again, this goes with responsibility, taking responsibility for the beliefs of our heart. So... Listen here, guys. So, I'm finishing up. The book of Colossians talks about how Jesus is, he, when He overcame the devil in His descent, and when He resurrected, it, it mentions how He led them in a parade, right? Triumphing over them in it. Andrew Womack, in his living commentary, listen to what he said, bring this out. The Romans would take a conquered king or general and strip him naked, tie him to a horse or chariot, cut off his big toes and thumbs, and have a victory parade. This was to show all the Roman citizens that the one who had been a threat would never cause them any more trouble. If this man had any power, he would never allow such a parade. But he couldn't hold a sword anymore or do anything but hobble. So in other words, Jesus forever changed the effectiveness of the enemy. We have to stop giving the devil more power than he has. And we have to begin taking responsibility. We have to begin taking authority. I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5, then I'm done right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read this in the King James. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not God, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Listen, a stronghold is not a sin you struggle with. A stronghold is a belief that you have that is hindering you from walking in the abundant life that God promises you. It's something that is contrary to what Jesus accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's a stronghold. All right? Casting down. Listen, listen to this. Casting down. He doesn't say Demons. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought. So when Paul's dealing with warfare, he mentions strongholds, which is beliefs, imaginations, and thoughts. This is New Covenant warfare. In a nutshell, New Covenant Warfare, what do you believe? Who do you believe? That's warfare. And when you have an imagination that's contrary to the... See, Genesis 3, 6, listen to what it says. I'm not going to go over times. Eve didn't eat until it says, and when she seen the tree was good for food. She, she, she wasn't tempted until she went there in her imagination. 
She wasn't tempted until she went there in her thoughts. Warfare. She gave in to the imaginations. She gave in to the thought. Warfare. All right? This is warfare. So, in conclusion, guys, this, this message is, is a summary of the three things that you really need to know. You need to know the truth about God, that God is good and He's always good. And when He works things together, it's for your good. All right? You need to know the truth about you. You are not a victim to fate. You, you, we've got to get rid of this fatalism idea in the church. You have control, you have authority, and you have a responsibility to reconcile heaven and earth in your life and in the life of those you have influence over. So you need to know the truth about God, you need to know the truth about yourself, and you need to know the truth about the enemy. He's defeated. He's lost all of his power. He's not organized. All right? See, part I, I could have covered it more in detail, but... Paul actually taught that when, Jesus, that, that when Jesus overcame hell and the grave, that he disorganized any organization the enemy and his armies had. This I, it just, just, it, it, it amazes me how much credit we give to the devil that Paul says Jesus took from him. Remember I said in the garden he gained an advantage? Well, in the death, burial, and resurrection, he lost that advantage. He doesn't have it no more. Now the question is, will we believe the truth or the lies? All right? So sovereignty, authority, and warfare. All right, guys, has this blessed you this morning? All right. Uh, let me pray over you, and we'll, we'll, we're going to pray over Jeremiah, and um, then we're going to be dismissed. And like I said, uh, I'll be back with you guys next Sunday. Looking forward to that. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that we've had to minister to your people, Father to read your word, to hear your truth, Lord. Lord, we, 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 we thank you that you are good and you are only good. Lord, we thank you that we are not subject to the enemy. We're not subject to the powers of this world. We choose you. We choose your wisdom. We choose your word. We choose what you have said, Father. And Lord... Part of that authority that you have given us is authority over every sickness, every disease, anything that would hinder. So Lord, right now we just pray for Jeremiah. We thank you for how well he is doing. We bless him in the name of Jesus. We bless his body. We bless his lungs, Father. We, bl we bless every, every organ, every part of his body, Father. We bless it and we thank you, Lord, for the healing power right now that is manifesting in his body and that is causing a recovery so quick that, that, it's, that people won't believe it, that it would be hard for them to believe when they hear, Father. Lord, I thank you that when he sleeps at night, he's going to rest well, Father. When he gets up and moves, he's going to be unhindered, Lord, that he's going to breathe well, that his lungs are full of oxygen, Father. We thank you that he is, he is uh, full of strength, that he's not tired, but he's full of energy, Lord. Just continue this recovery in the name of Jesus. We bless uh, Stacy. We bless Lily and Ethan and Eli, Father. Uh, we, can, we bless their bodies, Lord. We keep, we keep that hedge of protection round about them that you've given them, Father, that keeps this sickness away from them. We thank you, Lord, that the Johnsons have overcame COVID, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you, Father. And Lord, I bless each and every individual within the sound of my voice. Lord, they also have overcome COVID. Lord, they've overcome anything that would attack their body today in the name of Jesus, Lord. And I thank you for that. I thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. We believe the truth today over the lie. We believe that we are healed, not that we are sick. We believe that we are blessed, not that we are cursed. We believe that we are above, not that we are the tail. We believe that we are accepted, not that we are denied. We believe that we are approved in your sight without fault, Father, not blemished. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you have done in us, the work that you are doing through us. And we praise you for it in the mighty name of Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. Bless you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.